0: Let's pray together. Father, we come now to you this precious time where we sit in front of your word and you desire to speak to us this morning from this text. And so, in order for that to happen, we need your help. We need your grace. We need your Holy Spirit who is the one who brings the power and life to this text in our hearts. So I humble myself and I ask that Jesus would be lifted up and that all hearts would be affected by the word that is preached. If we leave here unhelped and unchanged, Lord, it we will we will not we we will have wasted our time here. We ask that you will do that by your grace. Lord, we want something to happen. We want to be helped. And so I ask you for your grace and kindness in this process. In Jesus' name, amen. I said to my uh, Greek class this morning that today is the 4th of July, and I, am, uh, I was just reminding them of the privilege of that. And I want you to think about this this morning, is that we worship here on the 4th of July uh, because we have freedom in this country to worship. There are churches right now... Uh, Overseas in Saudi Arabia, for, for example, that cannot worship with freedom at all, they come, They take them six hours to get to church because they come in twos, two by two by two over the course of six hours because if, if 10, 15 people walk in at once, then the government will know there's something going on and then they'll look into it and find out oh, well, there's a church and it's illegal. We can go outside right now and scream our heads off about how much we love Jesus. Isn't that amazing? Because we have the freedom to do that. So I just wanted to encourage you from the very outset not to waste that. This is a precious thing that God has given to us. But the greatest thing is this, is the emancipation that we have from sin. We have freedom from sin. And so on the 4th of July, I hope that you'll think about that and maybe present that to your children as some, somewhat of a devotional. The freedom that we have from the tyranny, not of government, but the tyranny of sin and from the devil. We're in Mark chapter 11. We have been uh, doing a series through the Gospel of Mark. And in this series, uh, we have been concentrating on really the life of Jesus. And last week, Pastor Mark preached from Mark chapter 10, and he covered the entire chapter in one sermon. And what I want to do this morning is I want to pick up where Mark left off, and then I want to move us into chapter 11. Now, here's where Mark left us last week, is that we have this scene, chapter 10, verse 46 where Jesus comes into contact with a man, a blind man named Bartimaeus. And Bartimaeus, it says, they came from Jericho, verse 46, and as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples, a great crowd, and Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside, and when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. So here's this blind man who realizes his dependency, his absolute source of any healing or help is going to come from Jesus. And he has enough faith to cry out for Jesus. So people tell him to shut up, be quiet, you're not allowed to talk, you know, you're just this blind guy, leave Jesus alone. And and Bartimaeus cries out all the louder. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. This guy is desperate for Jesus Christ. He is so desperate. So what happens is Jesus stops, and he, and he looks at him and calls him to himself. And, and what it says is that Jesus, eventually Jesus heals him. He says, what do you want me to do? And he says, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus says, go your way. Your faith has made you well. And notice the last verse of the chapter. And immediately, immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. So that's, that's where we are, chapter 11. Bartimaeus now is following Jesus. Jesus healed him and then made him a disciple. And Bartimaeus is on his way with another crowd, and they're coming to Jerusalem. So chapter 11 then is the beginning of what we call Passion Week. This is Palm Sunday, if you will, Mark 11. This is what you hear Palm Sunday sermons, the triumphal entry of Jesus Christ. He comes in on a donkey, right? This is chapter 11, and this is the beginning of what we call Passion Week. This is the week that our Lord was betrayed, he was tried, and eventually crucified by those who rejected him as the Messiah. So it's Sunday, and of course a week later, uh, Jesus would rise again from the dead. We're literally one week away from Jesus being resurrected. So Mark's gospel is coming to a drastic conclusion. I mean, that's how fast this is going here. And I, I love that about Mark's gospel, is that he gets right to the point. And, and you, you see it, and here we are at the very end now. So the Jews would come then uh, to celebrate the Passover from all over the Roman world. And you know what the Passover was? The Passover was a celebration of the great Exodus, where God led his people out of slavery from Egypt. And that was instituted way back in Exodus chapter 12. Exodus chapter 12. And so these Jews would come from all over the whole Roman world and celebrate Passover, And it was to commemorate the story of the Exodus. Now, Passover was one of those pilgrim festivals uh, in which the entire Jewish populace would make a pilgrimage to the temple in Jerusalem. So Jesus is on his way to the Passover festival. And he's with Bartimaeus, and he's with a Galilean crowd, a largely Galilean crowd. And Jesus knows what is coming ahead, and so he sets his face like a flint to Jerusalem. Because he knows it's not just a Passover festival that he's going to, but he knows this is the very end of his life. Imagine what Jesus is thinking here. See, this Passover would be entirely different, because while God was at work to heal and save, the opposition to Jesus was also growing at this time, and Jesus' entry into Jerusalem would mark the beginning of a new exodus. This Passover would be unlike any other Passover, because this would be a new exodus... The deliverance of God's people through the man riding on a donkey. God is preparing a way for a new exodus. My outline this morning is very simple and straightforward, and I think it will be easy for you to follow. Two points. Number one, we want to see two things. First, who Jesus is. Second, what Jesus does. Number one, who Jesus is. and Number two, what Jesus does. Who Jesus is. That's verses 1 through 11. Who Jesus is. So here's Jesus. He's on his way to Jerusalem with this crowd and his host of others from Galilee and in Jericho. And this crowd is largely friendly and supportive of Jesus. And they're eager to make a journey with him to Jerusalem. Uh, we read, it says there in the text, that they came to Bethpage and Bethany. Now this would have been about two miles really outside of Jerusalem. This is a suburb, if you will, of Jerusalem. And from all of my research, it appears that the name Bethpage is not a city at all, but rather it's a synonym for Bethany. It's synonymous terms. And for this reason, I think it's been suggested, and I think persuasively, that Bethpage is just another name for Bethany, but nevertheless, it's a very important name. What it means is House of Unripe Figs. House of Unripe Figs. So that's what best page means. Jesus is coming into the suburbs of Jerusalem, and, and he's coming into this region that we call unripe figs. Now, that's going to make more sense to you later. But for now, what I want to say is this, is that Mark is tipping us off to what's going to happen in the rest of the narrative by using the word best page. That's all he has to do is use that word. And that'll make more sense to you in a minute. But look how Jesus makes his way into Jerusalem. He does something really unusual. Uh, It doesn't seem to fit. At this point, uh, Jesus has obscured the fact that he is the Messiah, but now he's ready to make that official. And so he requests his disciples to go down, uh, probably to Bethany, and to get a donkey so that he can ride into Jerusalem. Now, what's unusual about this is that Jesus does not request a majestic war horse, which would be typical of a king who would come into a place... Get this massive horse, this beautiful horse, this white stallion, and for Jesus to come riding in on this war horse. But no, he asked for a polos. Polos is the Greek word which means donkey, a little colt, something that would have been more fitting uh, for a child or a hobbit or something like that. (laughs) I think Sancho Panza, anybody remember Sancho Panza, the uh, famous novel? this little guy, short guy, riding in on a donkey. And, and so this is, the, this is the issue with Jesus. He's coming in on this donkey. I mean, this is so odd. The Messiah, the one, the man with proven miraculous power, and he's coming in on this donkey. He's not mounted on a war horse prepared for battle. You know what he's doing? He's showing in his humility that he is coming not as a warlord, but he's coming as the Prince of Peace. So the drama of the Old Testament is playing out here. The words really are from Zechariah 9, where, and these words from Zechariah 9 are being fulfilled in this very moment. It reads this, Zechariah 9 reads this, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion! Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem! Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, on the foal of a donkey." That's a prophecy from Zechariah nine nine, and this is happening right now. Jesus is showing us both his majesty and his meekness. In a way, what he's saying is, "I'm a king, but look, I am, folks. I am not the kind of king that you expect. I am like no other king." So he makes his way to Jerusalem on this donkey, and look at the look look down at verse uh, look down at verse nine. What do the people cry out? They say this, "Hosanna!" Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Now, this is a quotation from Psalm chapter 118. It comes right out of Psalm 118, verses 25 and 26. And you know what it means? It means, Lord, save us now. So what it means, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna, Lord, save us now. This comes out of the halal section of the Psalms, which is Psalm chapter 113 to 118. These are known as the praise Psalms, 113 to 118. And every Passover, they would sing this song on the way to Jerusalem, and what it signified was the victory of God and that he will defeat all of his foes and he will establish his kingdom. But sadly, the people don't really understand what's going on. This is mechanical for them. They're singing the song. The song has been sung every year. We do this all the time at Passover. And so here we are, and they're singing the song, Lord, save us now. And it's kind of pretty much turned into praise the Lord or hallelujah. I mean, it's become like a mechanical expression, just like we would say praise, praise the Lord. And we mean that, and I, I think they meant it, but it didn't have the significance of, look, this is our Messiah. He's actually coming in, and we know it. Praise the Lord, save us now. See, they're not understanding that fully. And you have to understand that. It's important that you understand that. These, these folks are confused still. Now, they're looking for salvation in the wrong place and in the wrong way. They're expecting some political messiah, right, some king that's going to come in and turn over a, a massive uh, political uh, regime and create a new one. they They're confused. Then I stop and I think, why are they confused? Just ask Moses who this is. You know what Moses will say? Moses will say, he's the seed of the woman that's going to crush the serpent's head. Ask David. He'll tell you who he is. He'll say he's the king of glory. Ask Isaiah. Isaiah will tell you who he is. He's Emmanuel, wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. Ask Jeremiah. Jeremiah will tell you he's the righteous branch. Ask Daniel. Daniel will tell you he's the Messiah. Ask John the Baptist. He'll say he's the Lamb of God. You know what? Ask God himself. He'll tell you, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And dare I say, why don't you go ask the demons? They'll tell you this is the Holy One of God. Why are the people confused? Friends, let me remind us this morning that salvation does not come from anything other than the Lord. The reason I mention this is that people in our day look to substitute saviors like the Jews did. You know, someone who would topple over a political system and establish a righteous one. And the church in America looks in vain if they look to Washington for a savior. The church in America looks in vain if they trust in the laws of the land to establish righteousness. Now, friends, let me make a balancing comment. This does not mean that we don't participate in the political process. If you're not registered to vote, you should do that. That's a good thing to do. I encourage you to do that. It doesn't mean that we don't stand up for social and biblical injustices from a political standpoint. But what it does mean is that we need to discard the notion that God is going to save America through elected officials. He's not. That's not why Jesus came. He did not come to clean up Washington. He did not come to clean up any political system. He came to die for sinners for the forgiveness of sin. Political passion can be good. But for a lot of people, it might just be the idol of the day. What makes something an idol? Fundamentally, it's a God substitute. I like Martin Lloyd-Jones' definition. He says it this way. A man's God is that for which he lives, for which he is prepared to give his time, his energy, his money, that which stimulates him and rouses him, excites and enthuses him more than God himself. Friends, idolatry of any kind is dangerous, especially false saviors, those that you look to for false saviors. Now, this marks the first time that Jesus comes into Jerusalem in Mark's Gospel. Here he is, he's riding on this donkey, he comes in. Now, he's been to Jerusalem many times, but in Mark's gospel, this is the first time Jesus comes in. And you see, up to this point, Jesus has been ministering mostly outside of Jerusalem. Um, and and he, even in chapter 5, do you remember the section where he goes across the sea and he confronts all these demons and these crazy guys come running out of the caves? This is Jesus in a Gentile region. So Jesus has been in outside areas. And you see, for for the religious leaders, Jesus was an outcast. So it's not like Jesus is riding into a warm fellowship that's ready to embrace him on this donkey. No, it's going to be hostile for Jesus. And how ironic is this? The temple was not only the heart of Israel's religious life, but it was also the symbol of Israel's national identity. And when Jesus comes, he's not received. And if he is received, he's received with hatred and hostility and condemnation by the Pharisees, these brood of vipers that Jesus talks about. So in some senses, what we can say is Jesus is invading a foreign country. He's coming into an unfriendly atmosphere, and he's coming in to overtake it, not in a political warlike way, but to overtake it as a humble king riding in on a donkey. Jesus and his group of disciples, they look like an irrelevant band of itinerant preachers going around sowing the seed of the word. And slowly and slowly the kingdom begins to grow. And you know what? Soon this message will reach global impact. And then there's this odd verse, verse 11. I, this is just weird. When you read this, it's, it's just, it says, and he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. Stop. Stop here. Now, you've got to remember, all this is building up. They're laying palm branches out. Jesus is coming in. They're saying, Hosanna, Hosanna. A great crowd is following Jesus. And all of a sudden, we get to verse 11, and it says, Jesus entered Jerusalem, went to the temple, and when he had looked around at everything, it was already late. And so he went out. He went on home to Bethany. It's like... It's so anticlimactic. You know that little heading in your Bible? That's not an inspired heading, you know, over the paragraph. That, that's a man-made heading. It says triumphal entry. Really, this is the not-so-triumphal entry. Seriously, because when he gets to Jerusalem, there's nothing triumphal about it. He literally comes in and, and is dead. He looks around the temple, and he goes home, and he goes to sleep. <clears throat> I read that this week, and I stopped, and I was thinking, what? I mean, what is the deal with that? I'm waiting for something, and, and so what happens is Jesus probably goes back to uh, Mary and Martha's house in Bethany. That's where Lazarus lived. So Jesus probably goes back there, and he goes to sleep. <clears throat> so here's this whole thing. It's anticlimactic. You know what this is, folks? This is the quiet before the storm. This is the eye of the hurricane. And you know that violence is about to come. Jesus comes in. He surveys the land. It's almost as if, what's Jesus thinking? Is, is he analyzing? Is he seeing the battlefield? Is he beginning to pray? Does he realize the weight and the gravity of the moment? It's like Jesus surveys it. He goes to sleep, and he's prepared to do battle the next day with spiritual forces. And that leads us into verses 12 through 25, what Jesus does. Secondly, what Jesus does. So we have this great climax to Jerusalem and nothing happens. <clears throat> and then and then here if it doesn't get any odder, this is what happens. Mark throws in this account about a fig tree. <clears throat> I, I'm expecting Mark to say, okay, here's this anticlimactic thing, so let me go ahead and finish the story for you. But instead, what Mark does is say, I want to talk about a fig tree. Uh what what does a fig tree have to do with the triumphal entry? I mean, are these just two random passages kind of stuck together in Mark chapter 11? Well, I think you know where I'm going with this. No. See, Mark is a literary genius. He's a literary genius. Look what Mark does here. What, what Mark is doing is this whole section is masterfully woven together. Look at the language of verse 12. It says, on the following day, this would be Monday of Passion Week. So Monday morning they leave for Bethany. <clears throat> they leave Bethany for Jerusalem, and <clears throat> they're on their way, and Jesus gets hungry. So what he does is he sees a fig tree in the distance, and, and Jesus comes up, to him, he's, he's approaching it because he's hungry, and when he comes up to the fig tree, he sees that, that there's no fruit on the tree, so Jesus curses it. And he says, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. <clears throat> this is a troubling story, and the que- the question is, why would Jesus do such a thing? Because the text says it wasn 't the season for figs, so if you're if you 're a critical thinker at all you 're reading the text and saying all right here 's Jesus he 's hungry, he walks to a fig tree, and the Bible says it was not the season for figs, and he gets angry at the tree and he curses it This has tripped up a lot of people, a lot of people have become angry at this fig tree incident. I mean really, a lot of people are mad about it, and through the years, overly critical scholars. Uh, have rejected the story outright. One New Testament scholar by the name of uh, T.W. Manson wrote about it, and he said this, it's a tale of miraculous power wasted in the service of Jesus' ill temper. As it stands, it's simply incredible. William Barclay, a Scottish New Testament scholar, said this, this story does not seem to be worthy of Jesus. So great minds have rejected the story because it makes Jesus look like a spoiled child who's having a temper tantrum, and he kills a tree. You know, jesus it's like Jesus didn't get his way, so he exercises divine power, and he kills the tree. But you know what? Let me just a side note. I, I can't believe that New Testament scholars talk this way. I mean, it's so juvenile. Honestly, I can't believe any... That's just a side. Anyway, uh, the point is, other people reject the story because they assume that what happens uh, is, is, one, <clears throat> it's embarrassing for Jesus. And number two, if this doesn't get worse, some people reject the story because they think it's, it's appalling because of what Jesus does to the tree itself. I'm serious. People reject the story because they say that Jesus cursed an innocent fig tree. I'm dead serious. You read it, and people will say, well, what did the fig tree do? And they argue, well, Mark says it wasn't even the season for figs, and Jesus curses an innocent tree. (laughs) I don't even know what to do with this. Frank Frank Ferretti, a British sociologist, recently published an article suggesting, listen to this, listen carefully, that religious institutions should reinvent themselves by promoting ecological virtues and preaching against the eco sins. Of polluters. In other words, what's he saying? The concept of saving souls is an outdated concept, but what's a more pressing issue is the salvation of the ecosystem. The oil spill, way more important than souls. In fact, in 2006, the Church of England launched an eco-crusade entitled Shrinking the Footprint. The Archbishop of Canterbury said this, this quote, uh, th- listen to this quote, early modern religion contributed to the idea that nature can be bossed around by a detached sovereign will, whether divine or human, it seems possible that these misguided religionists received that idea from the book of Genesis, where God gives man dominion over all the earth. But we protest this idea of nature being bossed around, not only by man, but by God. This year, the Church of England launched a book called Green Tips for the Faithful. And the title of it was, How Many Christians Does It Take to Change a Light Bulb? And their eco-commandments include this. Share your car on the road to church. Use virtuous, low-energy light bulbs. Cast out all junk mail and do not flush the loo at night. The loo, that's an English word for toilet. That's pitiful, folks. That is pitiful. It's pitiful because people are more concerned with Jesus killing a tree than the souls of men, including their own. And they fail to remember that God created the tree. You know what? Here's a novel thought. He can do with that tree whatever he wants. He created it. I mean, but to say we protest the idea of nature being bossed around by God, I mean, that's a shockingly juvenile statement, foolish on so many levels. So, what's the fig tree about then? Well, you have to understand that at the outset, the fig tree cannot be understand, understood unless you see it as a sandwich. So, verses 12 through 14 and verses 20 through 25 form a sandwich around the meat of verses 15 through 19. All right? So, so you're supposed to read 15 through 19 in light of 12 through 14 and 20 through 25. The meat is 15 through 19. The bread is 12 through 14 and 20 through 25. It's a sandwich. And what Jesus is doing with a fig tree, he's acting out a parable against hollow religiosity. Jesus is doing something like the prophets before him did. This is called prophetic realism. Uh, Do you remember Isaiah? Isaiah was told to walk around barefoot and naked for three years. Do you remember Ezekiel? He laid on his side for 390 days. That's prophetic realism. It's a demonstration, and Ezekiel did it as as a demonstration of God's punishment to Israel and Judah. And Jesus kills a tree to demonstrate a larger point. I'm not denying he was hungry. He was surely hungry, but he's making a larger point. You see, Jesus is about to walk into the temple, 15 through 19, a place filled with empty religion. Religiously speaking, it's very busy. But fig trees in the Old Testament were often used to describe Israel's spiritual condition. And the fact is, this tree was a full-leaf tree, and it portrayed exactly what Jesus was looking for. Exactly what he wanted to teach. It's a grand tree with great promise, but in the end, it had no fruit. So when Jesus curses the tree in 14, he says, may no one ever eat from you again. What he is doing is he is prophetically enacting a parable. He is prophetically demonstrating the reality that judgment was in fact coming To the house of Israel, or Bethpage, if you will, house of unripe figs. Now you see the importance of the word Bethpage, that city of unripe figs. Really what's happening is that this is a direct fulfillment of Jeremiah 8.13. You know what Jeremiah 8.13 says? It says, I will take away their harvest, says the Lord. There will be no grapes on their vines. There will be no figs on their fig trees. Even the leaves of their trees shall wither. The crops that I gave them will be taken away. This is judgment. So this is a virtual, this is a visual parable to Israel and later to the church. A leafy tree with so much promise and no fruit. Busy, very active religiously, but no fruit. Sounds a lot like the parable of soils, doesn't it, back in Mark 4? It's dead. It's an empty religion. And the cursing of the tree is a dramatization or a foreshadowing of what Jesus is about to do. So let's get into it. Verses 15 through 19. It says, 15, 16 says, And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons, and he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. So here's Jesus. He walks into the temple, and when he comes in, he would have come in through what we know as the court of the Gentiles. This is massive structure. Look, we're talking about three football fields in length and width put together. The court of the Gentiles was huge, huge structure. Jesus would have walked in there. That's the main place that they would come in. And when he walked in, he literally would have seen thousands of people Passover week, hundreds of money changers, hundreds of animal sellers selling lambs, pigeons, things, things of this nature, this is a major industry. Our financial trading floors in New York are nothing compared to this. This is a major economy. Every year at Passover, hundreds, thousands of people gathering together. So Jesus, in his righteous anger, he, why is he angry? He's angry because he says to them from Isaiah 56 that this is meant to be a house of prayer for the Gentiles. So he comes in, he starts knocking over tables, flipping things over, and, and Jesus is angry. And when he gets done throwing over the tables, Jesus begins to teach. And when he teaches, he makes allusions to two references in the Old Testament. The first allusion in the Old Testament is Isaiah 56. He actually quotes from Isaiah 56, 7, which reads this, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the ethne, the Gentiles. And then he finishes his words with a quote from Jeremiah 7, 11, which reads, But you have made it a den of of Roberts now let me flesh this out let me let, let me just do um, let me just give you two words on how to interpret scripture in light of scripture. Whenever you see the New Testament quoting Old Testament, what they are doing is they are actually calling like when when isaiah fifty six is, is is jesus talking about isaiah fifty six what he's doing is he's pulling out the entire context of isaiah fifty six seven he's not just quoting like one line. It's, it's evoking the whole context. So when you read a New Testament author quoting the Old Testament, you're supposed to read that in light of the context of the Old Testament itself. You import the whole context. That's the way to read a scriptural quotation. So what happens is this. I want to do that with you. Look at this. Turn to Isaiah 56. Turn to Isaiah 56. And we're going to look, we're going to look at Jeremiah 7 two. And I want to read these words in light of the context of both Isaiah 56 and Jeremiah 7. Look at Isaiah 56, verses 3 through 8. Isaiah 56, 3 through 8. It says this, Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, The Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, Behold, I'm a dry tree. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast to my covenant. I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than the sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants. Everyone who keeps keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant. These I will bring to my holy mountain. And make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my offering, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. The Lord who gathers the outcast of Israel declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. See, Isaiah 56 is portraying the gathering of all God's people, in which all are one, all are equal, and all are welcome to the house of prayer including foreign nations and Gentiles. See, the foreigner, look at verse 3, comes with fear. The foreigner is afraid that either he'll be rejected or that if he is accepted, he'll be thrown into a separate category as a second-class citizen or something. But what all his fears are are groundless. Oh, people of God, hear God's heart here. Hear God's heart here. We are Gentiles, and we have been welcomed into the house of the Lord. Amen. We've been welcomed to His holy mountain with His family, to a house of prayer. And this is because, verse 8, God is in the business of gathering outcasts. We are outcasts. Friends, we are outcasts, but praise be to God that salvation has come to the Gentiles. Romans eleven eleven. 11. Oh, how, how inviting is our God. If you have not come to God savingly through faith in Christ, let me invite you to come to this house of prayer. Let me invite you to gather with God's people and turn from the worship and idolatry of self to God and serve Christ. So you pull the context of Isaiah 56, and all of a sudden this quote in Mark 11 becomes more powerful. Now let's look at Jeremiah. Flip over to Jeremiah chapter 7. We we'll look at the second half of Jesus' words, where He says, "Do you think this temple?" Jesus, uh, in in verse seven, He says, "You've turned into a den of robbers." Jeremiah seven. Another amazing word. Jeremiah seven. It reads this. Look, look at verse eleven. Do you think this temple? I have claimed as my own is to be a hideout for robbers. Take note, I have seen for myself what you have done, says the Lord. Well, what's the context here? Look at verses 3 and 4. I'm going to read from the New English Translation because it's clearer. This is what the New English Translation, I, I recommend that, it's a faithful translation. This is what it says, The Lord God of Israel who rules over all says, Change the way you've been living and do what is right. If you do, I will allow you to continue to live in this land. Stop putting your confidence in the false belief that says we are safe. The temple of the Lord is here. The temple of the Lord is here. The temple of the Lord is here. So what does it look like to amend one's ways? Well, here's a quick summary. Look at verses 5 and 6. Pursue justice. Relieve all forms of oppression, especially to the foreigner. Rescue the fatherless. Love the widows. And stop worshiping false gods. And do you want to hear my paraphrase of verses 8 through 10? Look at 8 through 10. Here's how I would paraphrase 8 through 10. It'll give you a chance to just kind of scan it with your eyes. Here's my paraphrase. Even though you act like the devil, participating in all forms of wickedness and sin throughout the week, don't worry. Bless God you're still saved because you go to church on Sunday and do a religious thing once a week. That's That's the point of verses 8 through 10. So what God is saying, God is saying, you have the audacity to come to me and stand before me in this house and pretend like everything is okay? No. Verse 11, you have turned my house into a den of robbers. And with those words, Jesus cast his curse and divine condemnation upon this hypocritical, dead, cold, and phony religion found in the temple. See, Jesus is saying, you're just like the people of Jeremiah 7 who trusted in their temple observance, their righteousness, saying things like, we worship here. This is our badge of honor. We're from the tribe of Benjamin. We know the whole law inside and out and are blameless according to the law. We have correct teaching. In fact, no one has a more pristine, accurate, or complete set of doctrinal beliefs anywhere. You see, they assumed that they were favored by God because of a program, because of an institution, because of their association with that institution. People with tons of religion, but having their identity wrapped up with that institution. Idolatry. It's idolatry because Christ wasn't their identity. The long-awaited Messiah was not their hope. Their satisfaction, approval, identity, and security was wrapped up in their cold, lifeless, religious institution. And what's more, they turned that into a business also. Friends, let me ask to you this morning in what or whom is your identity rooted? Is it your job? Is it your success? Is it your honor and pride? Is it your doctrinal correctness? Is it being a Reformed Baptist? Is it in being a fantastic dad, a good mom, or a loving wife? Are there any idols that need to be exposed in our hearts this morning? Surely there are. People of God, isn't it God's kindness to rip those idols from us? I want my idols to be ripped from me. I, I have idols of the heart. God ripped them from me. May God rip them from us, people. We have got to have our idols ripped from us. I just beg you and and, and I beg myself in the process that we would release our grip on those things instead and cling to the cross. Find your significance, your identity in, in Jesus. Christian, your security, your identity, your hopes, your dreams, your plans, your ambitions, your accomplishments, your successes, everything are to be found in Jesus absolutely everything not mothering not parenting not not being a good successful businessman nothing not nothing other than Jesus and with all those words Jesus curses the temple like he did the fig tree like he did the fig tree and here's another one of these uninspired man-made headings in your bible uh, i i just say it because it, it's it's an addition that crossway or somebody decided to put in there. But here's the thing. It says Jesus cleanses the temple. Folks, that's misleading. Jesus is not cleansing the temple. Jesus is not just kind of cleaning things up a bit and saying, look, I'm going to reestablish things in a more God-honoring way when I leave. No, he's overthrowing the entire temple system. He's writing it off. He's washing his hands of it. He's critiquing the entire system and ushering a curse upon the temple itself. It is no longer a place of God. It is no longer where he dwells. See, what was intended as a house of prayer for all the nations, God's dwelling place, was turned into a carnival, a place to rip off poor pilgrims who make their way down for the Passover. And when the people heard Jesus teaching these things, look at the verse. It says they were astonished, and they wanted to hear more. You know what? It's as if these people realized that God himself was there in the temple, and he was. Because Jesus is God. You know, it's like they realized it. I mean, have you ever heard of a really anointed sermon where you just knew the Holy Spirit was blessing that? See, these folks heard it, and it was right there and then. And Jesus was preaching it. And the chief priests and the scribes, instead of falling on their faces in confession and repentance, they end up devising a way to destroy Jesus. I mean, how sick have these guys become? The phrase in verse 18, seeking a way to destroy You know what that phrase is? That's pulled right out of Psalm 2. It's pulled out of this verse in Psalm 2. Listen to this. The kings of the earth will set themselves and the rulers to take counsel against the Lord, against his anointed. They're taking counsel, and they're seeking a way to destroy Jesus. A direct fulfillment of Psalm 2. So when evening came, verse 19, they went out of the city. And again, it's assumed that Jesus probably goes back to Bethany with Mary and Martha and Lazarus and stays in that house now let's go to the next section look what happens now as Jesus and his disciples head back to Jerusalem the next morning now this would have been Tuesday morning of Passion Week we read in verse 20 as they passed by in the morning they saw a fig tree withered away to its roots and Peter remembered and said to him Rabbi look hey the fig tree that you cursed it's withered and Jesus is like Duh. No, he doesn't say that. But what he says is, essentially, like he says, Peter, have faith in God. Of course it's withered. I cursed it. And whatever I do happens. Jesus curses the fig tree as his prophetic symbol of what he would do with the temple. And then he goes into the temple... and he he curses the temple with all of its external pseudo-religion, and then they see the withered tree, which was intended to be a symbolic representation of the fact that the temple itself is withering away and ultimately will be destroyed. And you know what, folks? We know that that temple was destroyed in AD 70. Have faith in God. Have faith in God. The demise of this temple has massive implications for the people of God, for us. See, God has rejected listen carefully to me, this phony, man-made religion of the Pharisees, and by rejecting the temple and its system, Jesus is also saying a greater age has come. Jesus is saying the old covenant structure, though it was good and though it was right, was corrupted and perverted by man. It's a shadow and it's withering away, and the promise of a new covenant is here. It's here in my blood. Jesus is saying an external alien righteousness is being revealed, the very righteousness of God in me. And this is the reason why I have come into Jerusalem and ultimately all the way to Golgotha is to produce a righteousness for you that is outside of yourself so you don't have to create some phony religion where you're worshiping God with your own acts. You need another religion. You need you need you need another righteousness and it comes from Jesus. This is amazing. This is amazing implications for us. And Paul says if righteousness were through the law, then Christ would have died for no purpose. Here's my application. Friend, if you're not a Christian, if you're here this morning, you're not sure you're a Christian. Let's just assume that you're not sure then you need to realize that, r- that righteousness is not found through your law-keeping. It's not found through your going to church on Sundays. It's not found through cleaning up your life. See, you cannot be saved that way. You cannot. Lo- lovingly, let me say this to you. That's a very good way to go to hell. Is to try to save yourself. Salvation comes when you realize you can't do it. And God won't accept it anyway. He doesn't want your righteous works. He wants the righteous works of His Son and your trust in that. See, see what happens is you just keep leaning on those good works and one of these days the foundation that you're standing on is going to fall out from under you and you're going to fall into the hands of a righteous God who will punish you. And you know why He'll punish you? Because you did not trust in His Son. And you know why that means something to God? Because He crushed His Son. He crushed His Son so you can have a righteousness that's outside of yourself. So if you say, I want to trust in my own righteousness, what you're saying is, no thanks to crushing your son. I don't care about the fact that you crushed your son. I'll take my own righteousness. And God, that's the greatest offense to God. See, And you will fall into His hands. You can have your good works. You can have your go-to-church righteousness, but you will pay a price for it. Listen to these words. Romans 10.3, for ignoring the righteousness that comes from God and seeking instead to establish their own righteousness, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Don't do that. Please don't do that this morning. Please do not submit to your own righteousness. Submit to God's righteousness. Here's, here's how you do it. Here's how you do it. Right there in your seat, you, you, you pray. You say, God, forgive me for trusting in myself. Forgive me for idolizing myself. Forgive me for worshiping myself. You sit there and you see and you say, God, I want to trust in Jesus. You crushed your son for me and I want to accept his righteousness. Why would you not do that? I mean, what could you possibly not do that for? Why would you not do that? Second Corinthians 5.21, listen to this. This is beautiful. But God made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us so that we could become the righteousness of God. Here's my application to my Christian friends, fellow believers. Listen to this. What God says is going to happen. If he says it's going to happen, it will happen. Have faith in God. Some of us have a hard time believing in God's promises. Look, I mean, you know it. You struggle with assurance. You struggle with hope for the future, deliverance, whatever it is. And though we've heard the promise a thousand times, we struggle to believe God's words. Let me encourage you with this passage. If God says it. It's gonna happen. Take heart. Jesus intends for us to realize then, with this whole issue of the fig tree in the temple, okay, that the withering of the tree is not a random act of anger against the tree. See these guys that go off and talking about all the innocent tree, that's not the point. It never was the point to begin with. The point is that this tree is not the issue. The issue is the cursing of the temple and a dead religion. This is not some random act. This is emblematic of the temple itself. And that's why Jesus goes on to say, look at verse, um, look at verse 19. I'm sorry. Look at um, verse uh, 23. Jesus goes on to say, he says, Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, Be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Listen listen to this listen listen carefully Jesus is not just teaching some nice warm lessons here on prayer and faith He's not it's all organically connected the context demands that we see something more here growing in faith and prayer is certainly a part of it it's certainly a part of it but listen 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 carefully but as an emphasis it's a secondary concern for Jesus When Jesus says this mountain he's not referring to just any old mountain He's referring to the temple mountain that was visible across the valley as Jesus spoke to his disciples. In plain sight, they would have seen the Herodian Fortress, this temple that was built by Herod the Great. And even this day, its ruins are visible. You can go there today and see it. Let me tell you a story of how this was built. Look, Herod had a whole bunch of slaves. And you know what he did? Herod had his slaves actually dig out a hill and moved the dirt from that hill to become the foundation and support structure for the temple. In literal terms, in engineering terms, Herod moved a mountain to build this temple. And the people were well aware of this feat by Herod, and so Jesus takes advantage of their knowledge, and he looks at his disciples, and he looks at the mountain, and he says, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will be done. In fact, speaking of the temple, Jesus says in in Mark 13, do you see these great buildings? There will not be one stone left on another that will not be, what, thrown down. So when Jesus says the temple will be thrown down, he's referring to its ultimate destruction and demise. You say, well, how could this be? The temple is where the presence of God is. It is. It's the dwelling place of God. But listen, as a result of Israel's sin, God removed His presence from the temple. Jesus is saying that this temple will become obsolete, and a new temple, a new dwelling place of God will come. And then in Mark fourteen fifty eight, Jesus says, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another that is not made with hands. What is Jesus doing? He's identifying Himself with a new temple. Later, Paul and Peter will identify Jesus as the cornerstone of this new temple. So what Jesus is saying is that the old temple is being rejected. This old phony religion, that is Pharisaical, works righteousness religion, is being rejected. It's not the dwelling place of God anymore. Instead, a new temple is coming, a new place for prayer, a new dwelling place of God has come, and it is here, friends. It is represented by these disciples who are the new Israel, the new people of God. This is the, his disciples are the beginning. And with Jesus as the cornerstone of this new structure, this new temple, this spiritual temple. So the chief, And we'll see this next week. The chief priest and the scribes and the elders will ultimately reject Jesus as the cornerstone of any such temple. And the implication then is this, is that if you reject Jesus as the cornerstone, that's equivalent to rejecting the new temple. Because, because upon this cornerstone, the rest of the church will be built. Do you long for God's presence? Do you long for God's presence? So Everyone in here wants to have an experience with God. Everyone wants to have an experience with God. Where does that take place? See, this morning God is showing us where he is and where he meets with his people. Do you want to know where God's presence is? It's right here. It's right here. This is where God's presence is. It's with His church. It's with those who have been called out and united to Him by faith. This is where God is collectively. We are His dwelling place. We are His new temple. I just have to make this application. If, you're, if you tend to be a lone ranger Christian, you tend to have an, an attitude of your Christian life, it's just Jesus and me, I don't really need the church, I don't really need to join a local body, I don't really need to participate on, a, on that level with a church. I can just have a relationship, me and Jesus. I want you to know, and I want to say sweetly and gently to you, that's not where God's presence is. That's not where God's presence is. God's presence is with his collective people. That's his temple. And if you're isolated from that temple, you are isolating yourself from the presence of God. Have you trusted in Christ? Are you even a Christian? If you are a Christian, are you a plugged in, faithful member of a local church? And then finally, I want to say this there's a special relationship between the presence of God and prayer. Isn't there? Jesus is talking about a house of prayer for all the nations. And I think that I think this we learn what it means to be the dwelling place of God when we learn to be a people of prayer. That's the point. See, his temple is intended to be a house of prayer for all nations, and so it is. So it's not like Jesus came along one day and said, look, this, this temple, the second temple that was destroyed, was supposed to be a house of prayer. You turn it into a den of robbers, but instead I'm going to create a new temple with my people called the church. It's not like Jesus came along and said, but the house of prayer thing, that, that's no longer in existence. You don't have to worry about the house of prayer thing anymore. No. We're the temple of God. We're the new people of God. And the house of prayer thing is still important. This is still supposed to be a house of prayer for all the nations. Are we a house of prayer for all the nations? That's why we love missions. That's why we pour our hearts out. That's why we give. We want to participate because this is supposed to be a prayer house for all the nations. That did not go away with the destruction of the second temple. And we're a local expression of that praying house. People of God, there is an intimate relationship between the presence of God and the prayers of His people. What indication is there that you hunger for the presence of God? On the individual level, I think it means this. You say, Do I hunger for the presence of God? Here's your test Are you eager to regularly get alone? I mean, just you, your Bible, and the Spirit of God in your prayer closet. Are you eager for that? I mean, eager. Secondly, are you eager to get with the people of God as much as possible? I mean if god if, if i'm right here if this exegesis is right if we are the new temple and in god's special dwelling place is here then then we are a local expression of that then you should be eager to get with god's people what about what about our services what about care groups folks please take care groups seriously please take it seriously it is vital for you uh, there are there are weeks that I, I i say this humbly honestly There are weeks that I pour seven or eight hours into preparation for a care group because I believe in the significance and importance of that. Seven or eight hours, you say, that's a terrible use of pastor. No, it's not. This is where we connect. This is where we do the one another's. This is where we love one another. This is where we encourage one another. This is where Hebrews 3.13 makes a difference. You know, instruct one another, exhort one another, so you may not be hardened to the deceitfulness of sin. How can that happen if you're just at home? We 've got to come, please make a sacrifice, make a sacrifice, make a third world kind of sacrifice. These people walk fifteen miles to church, they walk in the hot, blazing sun. You can come, please make a sacrifice pastorally i 'm going to make a sacrifice because I think it's important. so this serves as a litmus test I, I please don 't misunderstand me i don 't want to motivate you by guilt. I want to motivate you by the presence of god it 's not about it's not about, look, you're not a good Christian because you don't come out. It's not about that. It's about this. God's presence is here. Please come. His presence is here. It's, it's going to help you. It's going to serve you. Friends, it's, this, it's like this. If you, if you want more of the Spirit of God, then we've got to be a more praying people. And on a corporate level, here's what it means. What are the evidences that as a church we're full of life and vigor? What are evidences as a church that we are spiritually alive? Here's a major test. Here's how healthy we are as a body is in our commitment to and consistency in corporate prayer. Look at the prayer meeting of any church. Grab any random church and put your finger on it and you'll discern the spiritual pulse of that church. And I don't think humbly, I don't think we, I don't think I am, I don't think any I don't think the pastoral staff. I don't think we are where God wants us to be where Jesus would have us to be. I was so blessed. I have to identify the evidence of grace. Uh, Wednesday, we had a prayer meeting. And it was just a random, look, it's fifth, fifth Wednesday, come out if you want to come. And we came, and it was small, really, really small, embarrassingly small. And, and I look back, and there's no child care, so it's understandable, there's no child care. But I look back, and then I saw our director of child care, Chris Houston sitting in a pew with three of her kids and Jason was working but Chris was there she brought all of her kids and she's probably tired of kids she's the director she's serving as direct so here she is with her kids because she's hungry for prayer Chris I don't want to embarrass you and I know it's grace but we if Chris can do that we can do that we can do that we can come out we can be hungry and here's my final illustration for us five college students Came to Charles Spurgeon's church in 1870 for a visit. And they came in the side door because the main gate was locked before the evening service. And as they wandered down the hall, they ran into a a little short man who greeted them there, 1870. And the man said, Welcome to the uh, tabernacle. I'd like to show you around. Would you like to see the boiler room? (laughs) The students consented for fear of offense. And so they went downstairs into a long, dimly lit hallway. And they walked to the end where two double doors were shut. And as it began to get close to the doors, they heard the hum of what seemed to be the boilers making noise. The man reached forth and he opened the door and there inside were seven to eight hundred people on their knees. Before the evening service praying. He said, this is our boiler room. This is where the energy lies behind this ministry and from which the power flows. All other things, our most animated worship, our most accurate preaching, our most aggressive gospel ministry is useless without it. And I ask us this morning, do we have a boiler room? Do we have a place where the fires of, of, are stoked by the diligent intercession of Heritage Baptist Church's spirit-filled members? Are Are we just kind of playing around on Sundays? Are, are, is our attitude too casual? Have we grown cold and lifeless? Have we become too much like that temple, that second temple? People of God, this is intended to be a house of prayer for all the nations. Let us make it that. None of us are where we need to be. The pastoral staff's not where they need to be, but together we can do this together. We can create a boiler room, and it's going to start with the anointing of God's Spirit and being hungry for His Word. And this is my close. You know what? Here's the thing. God loves us like crazy. And isn't this great news? He still loves us. He still loves us like crazy. Our humble King, He rode in on His donkey, and He didn't stop at Jerusalem. He went all the way to the cross. And when He got to the cross, He was slaughtered there like a lamb. And then he rose again, and he became our righteousness, so we don't have to worry about our own. And he formed a new temple, a new house of prayer, in which, friends, we ourselves are the very presence of God. Let's pray. Oh, Father, these things are so weighty. We, we, don't even, we can't even wrap our minds around the grandeur and the greatness of this stuff. Lord, we have got to have a greater vision of who you are and who we are supposed to be. I pray that your spirit would do that. Leave us, God. Leave us, impress your spirit, soak us with your, pervade us with your spirit. Lord, may may we never read Mark 11 the same again. Because we have seen the grandeur and the beauty of what you have intended to do with a new temple and a new house.